Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Before we get started, I want to say I'm really glad to be back from the summit of Mount Everest, the highest mountain in the world. I'm deeply thankful to all of you who've contributed to the Climb to Fight Cancer charity fundraising campaign at Fred Hutch, and for all of the well wishes and the outpouring of congratulations since I got home. It was really an incredibly immersive, once-in-a-lifetime experience. I'll have more to say about it in coming months, because I know people want to see the photos, so stay tuned. Now, after two months away from my desk, it's time to put my biotech hat back on. And I'm happy to introduce the latest guest for the long run, Tony Coles. He is the co-founder and CEO of Humanity Therapeutics, a Cambridge, Massachusetts-based company doing drug discovery against neurodegenerative diseases. That means Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Now, this is a fascinating time to be focused on neurodegeneration. The biology of these diseases is still in its infancy and showing promise. The pharmaceutical industry has spent and continues to spend a ton of money pursuing a narrow set of hypotheses, particularly with regard to Alzheimer's disease. This hasn't worked out too well, so it's time for fresh thinking in R&D and Coles and his team are taking a fresh approach to the science and to drug development strategy. There's also much more to Tony Coles than what he does in his day job at Humanity. Coles happens to be an African-American executive in an industry that doesn't have many African-Americans in leadership. Now he and I have known each other since 2011. At the time, he was the CEO of Onyx Pharmaceuticals and that company developed a couple of important cancer drugs. I wrote a magazine-style profile about him, covering everything from his childhood upbringing, to his decision to become a physician, to various career moves in industry. Cole struck me then, and continues to strike me today, as an exceptionally thoughtful person. He wonders about the how and why of the world. And you can see it in the rich variety of boards he chooses to serve on. Johns Hopkins University, the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, and the Council on Foreign Relations, as well as the Harvard Medical School Advisory Board. Many people saw his diverse set of experiences and views on display, his leadership really, last August. At the time, Merck CEO Ken Frazier, also an African American, resigned from a presidential panel of business leaders after the president's equivocating response to the hate speech and violence that erupted that month in Charlottesville, Virginia. Cole stood up for Frazier, writing in a stat op-ed that he demonstrated moral leadership. Coles wrote, quote, there are not many sides to what happened in Charlottesville. There are only two, justice and the fact that all men and women are created equal on one side and hatred and bigotry on the other. Now, biotech is an industry with a mission to improve human health. That means everyone's health. But for biotech to live up to that promise, it's important to pay attention to underserved groups to try to understand what it's like to walk in another person's shoes. I tried to take a few steps with Coles in the latter half of this show. I hope it helps encourage others in this industry 
which has such a powerful public service mission to keep the conversation going. Now, before we get started, I'd like to thank the sponsors of this show. For more than 200 years, Harvard Medical School has shaped the design of medical school education throughout the world. Now, Harvard Medical School is bringing its expertise to organizations that seek to drive growth and innovation in healthcare. Harvard Medical School designs and delivers customized executive level programs that provide business and science leaders with a fundamental understanding of current medical practices, the changing economic landscape of healthcare, and the latest advances in biomedical science. Companies like Google, Amgen, GE, and Athena Health are leveraging new customer insights gained through Harvard Medical School. Programs include first-hand insights into physician decision-making, patient perspectives, real-world workflows, and the business of medicine, advances in technology, biomedical science, and patient care that may present new opportunities for your company, discussions on trends in patient-centered care, data science, genomics, digital health policy and reimbursement, and exploration of -of state-of-the-art treatments for specific diseases. For a free consultation on how your company can gain new customer insights with Harvard Medical School, the long-run listeners can visit hms.harvard.edu slash longrunexec. I'll say that again. For a free consultation on how your organization can gain insights from Harvard Medical School, go to hms.harvard.edu slash longrunexec, all one word. Also, just about everyone in the cancer R&D world is thinking about combination therapy and complementary mechanisms of action. Not only do drug developers need to see proof of their biological mechanism as a monotherapy, but also in combination with other treatments fast emerging on the scene. Now this gets complicated in a hurry, especially when you think about all the possible mechanisms, dose regimens, and tumor types that need to be taken into account. Companies today often have to burn through 30 to 50 patients in a phase one clinical trial to get the answer to these important questions. That takes a lot of precious time and money. Presage Biosciences is working to improve this approach. They are now working with biopharma companies to use Presage's patented microinjector device that enables intratumoral microdosing of experimental cancer drugs. This microdosing tool can allow for a half dozen or more combinations of drugs to be injected directly into a single tumor while the tumor is still in the mouse or in the patient. This is a way to run multiple experiments at once to get the maximum information to guide drug development on time and on budget. The device is being used in a clinical trial right now. To learn more, go to presagebio.com. Now, join me and Tony Coles for the long run. With me today is Tony Coles. He's the CEO of Humanity Therapeutics an Alzheimer's drug discovery company in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Welcome, Tony, and thanks for joining me on The Long Run. Well, thank you, Luke. Tony, as you know from listening to this show, um, I I like to uh, let the listener get to know the person that I'm speaking with, a little bit on their background first. And um, listeners should also know that um, 
you and I have uh, known each other for a number of years. I wrote a magazine-type profile of you back in uh, 2011 when I was at Xconomy. So um, I don't know. I guess that makes us uh, like we're getting older. Does, is that what that means? <laughs> I, well, at, at least by almost a decade. So but, but <laughs> you know what they say, uh, the best friendships ripen with age. So uh, I think that's true for us. Since I wrote the article about kind of tracing your life story and your career journey, I, I don't necessarily want to repeat it all here on the show. I'll put the link to that story, however, in the, um, the summary that I post on Timmerman Report um, of the show. But I, I do want to come back to um, some of the, the themes um, that were raised in that story. Number one about, I mean, you are an African-American and uh, that's unusual in this industry, and it's given you a set of unusual experiences to share. And I, so I definitely want to uh, cover that in some detail later in the show. But first, <clears throat> um, let's talk. Let's talk about the here and now, the company that you're with, Humanity. Because um, when we first got to know each other, uh, you were the CEO at Onyx Pharmaceuticals, cancer drug developer um, that was working on. This drug for multiple myeloma, um, Kyprolis, it's now on the market, um, sold by Amgen. Um, you sold that company uh, for a lot of money. It was $10 billion. Shareholders, employees, executives did well, yourself included. This was uh, 2013, about five years ago, I believe. Um, you could have done a lot of different things, um, but you, you chose to go into Alzheimer's drug discovery at this company, Humanity. What, what was it that excited you about this moment, or that moment, I guess, in, uh, in Alzheimer's R&D? Well, I, I, I'd say two things, Luke. You know, after you have an experience like the Onyx experience, where you introduce two new drugs to the market, you help uh, transform the lives of a number of people uh, and their families, <clears throat> You know, it's it's really hard to find the next thing to do that will compare to, to that kind of experience. It was a tremendous experience. It was uh, the, the ride of my life, as it were. And I, and I like to think that we really did help a, a number of folks. But as I thought about the next chapter, I, I wondered what what could I do to top that? What could I do that would have the kind of impact societally and globally that I really hope to have uh, in, in the years that I have on this earth? How, uh, how could I take great science and use it in an area where the unmet need is high and, and uh, really work to change people's lives? And an old friend, Susan Lindquist, who uh, is a former director of the Whitehead Institute, a very well-known and celebrated scientist, called out of the blue six or seven months after uh, the Onyx transaction and she asked if I would help her raise money for a new company uh, she was ready to, to start with uh, some technology out of her laboratory. Uh, and I was happy to do it. I had always respected Sue, had always loved uh, uh, her work and who she was, both not, as only, not only as a scientist, but as a person. And then in the next breath, literally before, I, uh, as soon as I said yes, I'd help her, uh, she asked if I'd run it. And, and that wasn't quite what I had in mind at the moment. But as I studied the science to um, help her raise the money, and then as I really understood the potential for these, these uh, devastating diseases, uh, I said, yes, I was literally compelled 
to, to do this. The combination of the science with the opportunity to make a dent in a, in a really big problem was just too good and too compelling to, to turn down. Now, her science uh, was concentrated in, I guess you'd say, protein misfolding at the Whitehead Institute. What, um, what was the key insight here for starting a company? Well, Sue was many things. Uh, she was an evolutionary biologist. She was an expert in uh, protein disorders and protein uh, misfolding, as, as you've indicated. Uh, and it was, it was just part of the vast appetite she had uh, for, for scientific inquiry. But the, the basis of humanity therapeutics had everything to do with a, a particular and very deep insight that Sue had, which is that you could understand what happens at the cellular level in humans by understanding what happens at the cellular level of yeast. Now, on the surface, just regular baker's yeast, uh, uh, to, for, as, as an example, on the surface, this might strike some people as odd, but when you begin to appreciate that the, the genes uh, in a yeast, in many instances, overlap with human genes, in many cases by 40 or 50 or 60 percent, you can see that there's an opportunity for us to learn quite a bit about basic cellular process. Now, of course, you can't study yeast for higher cognitive disorders like schizophrenia or uh, autism uh, because they, they're obviously very simple organisms. But at a genetic level, and they're easy to manipulate and cost-effective to work with, if you can get some insight into replicating these human diseases at a cellular level uh, within a yeast, you at least have a starting point for the, 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 the biological basis of disease. It won't give you all the answers, but it does give you a really powerful starting point. And importantly, the problem with neurodegenerative diseases has really been in understanding what happens at the cellular level and where the dysfunction and the malfunction is in protein metabolism, in the machinery of the cell, and in how the cell itself works once it's been affected by these misfolded proteins. Uh, amyloid beta in the case of Alzheimer's, alpha-synuclein in the case of Parkinson's, which are two of the diseases that we look after. Now, of course, you extend this work by uh, replicating <clears throat> the screens that we do for compounds in these models, and you replicate the screens in human cells. But we can get to that in just a moment. But it was that particular and that very deep insight that formed the basis of humanity therapeutics. And you know what? Sue turned out to be right. Well, and um, I'm sure at the time, I mean, can't ask Sue. I know Sue passed away, um, unfortunately, uh, I think a year or so ago. Um, but I'm sure if I were to ask her today, you know, what she saw in you, I mean, you're a seasoned pharmaceutical executive at this time familiar with the industry and its approaches to this problem um, of Alzheimer's, um, and that there wasn't a whole lot of discovery going on. There was a lot of development, but a lot of eggs had been placed in the amyloid beta uh, clearing basket, I guess you could say, a couple different ways with antibodies and small molecules, um, but not a lot of discovery and not a lot uh, certainly not a lot of yeast-based um, systems for discovering new targets and, and new uh, modalities. So you were sort of a bridge person, I guess, um, someone who could 
hopefully explain what she was doing and its potential to um, people that really needed to hear that message. Well, I, you know, I, it, uh, you, you are right. Sue passed away about uh, a year and a half ago, uh, way too early. And uh, we, we miss her uh, dearly at the company, and I miss her personally because we were, we were in addition to being partners, very good friends. And I, so I'd never dare to speak for her, but when we would speak about humanity together uh, and when we would talk about the opportunity, um, what became really clear is that we shared the same value set, the, the, the same set of values around making an important difference uh, in science and in medicine, making a big difference in people's lives, uh, patients and caregivers, and in, in always staying focused on how, how to do the right thing at, at every turn. So w we were, in a way, kindred, kindred spirits uh, on, on that level. And of course, her deep scientific insights uh, obviously need, needed translation so if I could bring anything to the table to translate those insights to actually establish and uh, help found a company that would take the science, turn it into a drug discovery process or, or an engine, if you will, and then use that to unlock new, new secrets about Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and, and Lou Gehrig's, of course, the third disease we look after, then that would be a, that'd be a great combination. Uh, and my career has, in a sense, really been about leading up to this moment. Because although I'm a cardiologist, I've been fortunate enough to be involved in a number of therapeutic areas uh, and have had a personal interest in Alzheimer's, of course, because my grandmother was an Alzheimer's victim. And I watched, uh, watched how the disease ravaged her. So it's always reminded me that as much as we know about the treatment of human disease, there's still so much more that we don't understand. And I think that's been the big problem with these disorders and why there've been so many failures. We've just been guessing wrong. Well, and having come most recently from oncology, I mean, you've been, you've seen the renaissance there really in um, a much deeper understanding of biology um, and defining of patient populations that's led to, I think, uh, um, a lot of important new therapies in the pipeline. I don't see that same kind of bounty <laughs> coming to harvest in, in neuroscience. Um, it seems like it's at a different point in time in, its, in our understanding of the biology. Um, and I'm sure plenty of your peers in pharma, you know, look at it in similar terms. Did, what, what kind of reaction did you get? Uh, people say, geez, Tony, have, have you lost your marbles going into this, <laughs> this arena? Well, Why but, not do another think, cancer think, company? Well, th think, about it, think about it this way. They, we declared war on cancer in this country in the 1970s. And it wasn't until the 1990s, the late 1990s, that we were able to identify really innovative, state-of-the-art therapies that transformed our thinking about treating cancer. So call that 20 or 25 years or so since we first declared war on cancer. We lined up the right resources for federally sponsored research. We helped academic centers uh, get launched as a result of uh, that sponsored research. That obviously fed into the drug company and the drug discovery process. So there, there's, a moment, uh, there's a moment of separation between when you declare war on something and when you can actually really gain the insights. And that actually just takes time. 
So we've been the last 10 or 15 years, while the, the devastations of Alzheimer's have always been with us, the, the epidemic that is Alzheimer's is coming because as the aging baby boomer population advances, there will be 40% of the population, 45% of the population over the, 85, over the age of 85 who will develop some form of dementia. So we're going to be dealing with a problem of epic proportion. So we 10, 15 years or so ago, not that it was new, but really recognized that we, we weren't doing enough. And if you ask the top scientists, the top drug discovery experts, and the top biopharmaceutical leaders, they will tell you that the number one problem we have is in unlocking the mystery of neurodegenerative diseases. So we are, in a sense, declaring our own war on these particular diseases. So once you marshal the resources, once you set your sights on the goal and what needs to be done, that gives us the incentive, in many instances, the money, and the opportunity to get tightly focused on how we make a dent. And I think that's the moment we're living in now. We can always use more money behind this research because investors do get skittish when there's a failure, but this is too big a problem to ignore and we've got to figure it out. So we're in a self-declared war on these diseases. Well, and of course you're aware of um, the, the rate of success or lack thereof in the pharma pipeline. I mean, it's something like, 99.6% of drug candidates' trials fail, maybe 100% if you consider Aricept not much of a win. Um, but the biology, it, it, it always brings me back to the biology. It's still some, there's so much unknown. <laughs> and now, I think what's interesting now is, you know, maybe, maybe industry has, has declared this war, as you say. I don't know if it's been quite in quite a public way that cancer uh, that that occurred with cancer but you know I think we're starting to see a whole lot of different hypotheses just begin to get some some airtime and and it's messy <laughs> you know people some people posit there's too much inflammation going on or or sometimes not enough <laughs> to, to clear out the plaques um, and then there's all kinds of ideas flowering out there about um, amyloid beta versus tau and the relative importance. Um, you know, are there are there therapies that we have on the market that already that could be repositioned in some way? Is there some kind of a role for environmental uh, behavioral therapies like crossword puzzles or video games and such? <laughs> what role does diet play? I mean, how how do you keep track of all this and and, and know what to prioritize? Well, the, the beauty of the approach we take at Humanity is that we follow the science. And, and here's what I, what I mean by that. So you, you start with the, the yeast model, uh, the yeast system that I, that, that I talked about. And we actually are able to overexpress the proteins of interest. So misfolded synuclein or misfolded uh, amyloid beta, for instance, and, and others for the relevant diseases. And we're able to observe what happens within the cell. Now, that's, that's an unbiased, what we call an unbiased phenotypic approach. Because the only thing we're doing is, if you will, infecting the cell or affecting the cell with these overexpressed proteins. And what's really interesting is that we're not starting out with any hypothesis. 
we're asking the cells to tell us why they're sick, and as a result of the screening with compound libraries, what makes them better. So we really don't have any bias going into this and can just observe, and the models are very, um, very clear. You can see when cells do well, you can see when cells don't do well, and you can really understand how to take a, a healthy uh, system, uh, make it an unhealthy system as a result of these overexpressed proteins, and then as a result of screening compounds in a library, watch them start to grow again. Now the question is to try to figure out what caused them to grow, and that's the fun part. But I think having, having an unbiased, having a clean slate, an unbiased approach uh, is a really good starting point. And what's happening, we find, is that we're able to identify targets, new opportunities to understand what happens in the cascade of disease that we've been overlooking. I mean, sometimes right in front of our very noses. So that's the really fun and interesting part. Now, of course, we've got to validate all of this work in human cells. And to do that, we take stem cell, pluripotent stem cells, and we, we grow them to become neurons. So they're human neurons. We take them from patients, and they actually carry the DNA of patients for the diseases of interest. And as we, as we think about <clears throat> now screening, in these pluripotent stem cell neuron models, we can overexpress the proteins and make the cells toxic, and then we can screen and do exactly what we did in yeast cells in human cells, and that gives us more insight. Then we can actually map the genome of the affected process, if you will, against the yeast genome and see if there's a match in the corresponding area of the yeast genome that had been isolated as potentially causative in, in, the, um, in the disruption of the cellular processes. That sounds like you can get a, a much more, you know, validated target, if you will. Um, a, a good hypothesis now. Now you've, you've gone from, you know, no hypothesis to, you know, something that's worth testing in, in a clinical trial. That's right. And, and that's the beauty of the system. It's really very simple and it's very elegant. And, but in many ways it was it was key to Sue's, Sue's thinking. She was simple and elegant in her, in her scientific inquiry, and the gift she's given us of these, these technologies, these platforms that, that constitute the company, is I think going to be one of the gifts that keeps on giving as we start to unlock new targets for these disorders. So you're a private company. You raised something like, I, I think, 45 million or so. This would have been two or three years ago. Is that right? It was 47 uh, million, and that was through a group of institutional investors, strategic investors, and then friends and family. Okay, so that gets you up and running. You've built a team of how many people? We've got 35 employees in the company, 30 of whom are scientists and scientifically trained individuals, most of whom are PhDs. Okay. Okay. Now, uh, the last time I spoke with uh, your chief scientific officer, Ken Rhodes, this was almost a year ago. And he's got a lot of experience in this area. He worked at Biogen for many years, has his fingerprints on their aducanumab program. Um, fingers crossed. Hope that one pans out when the data come uh, next year, I believe, uh, from phase three. But I, if, if memory serves, Ken said something that, that you, you were focusing in on ApoE4 as a drug target. Now, uh, 
I think for those that are not familiar, ApoE4, the genetics of this are, are pretty well established. I think if you've got two mutated copies of this gene from both mom and dad, your risk of getting Alzheimer's is something like threefold higher. So much higher risk, it appears to play some role. Uh, but I, I haven't heard a lot about ApoE4 drug development. Um, are you guys, is that one of the targets that you're still looking at? And if so, why? We are. And, and the, the reason is very simple. It's because the genetics are, are too powerful to ignore. So you're right. If you are a homozygote, for meaning that you've inherited a, a copy of the gene from each parent for, the, for ApoE4, then you have an elevated risk, a dramatically elevated risk of, uh, of uh, experiencing the disease and importantly, it's experiencing the disease at a much younger age and in a more virulent and aggressive uh, form than as simply as the result of, uh, of older aging. So the, the, the fact that those genetics, uh, the genetics behind this form of, of Alzheimer's are so compelling, we just can't ignore it because there's something powerful and because yeast uh, are, are really good for understanding genetics in a very simple way at first, but we translate those learnings to human cells separately, as I've mentioned, then it's a really interesting uh, uh, approach for us to try to understand what happens when ApoE4 is overexpressed in a cell. So we put it on par with alpha-synuclein, uh, with amyloid beta, uh, and uh, and uh, with TDP43, which I haven't mentioned, but that's one of the culprit proteins for uh, ALS or Lou Gehrig's disorder. Each one of these proteins obviously shares uh, the, the characteristic of being involved in, in some form of protein malfunction in, at the cellular level. But trying to unlock what happens when the protein malfunctions is really the work that we're embarking on. But because ApoE4 is such a strong signal, we've got to pay attention and we've got to look. And our models uh, look quite interesting well, now, for ApoE4. ApoE4, I, I think it's a secreted protein. Um, is there something about it that makes it difficult to drug in the first place? Like, why hasn't anybody else done this? Well, I, I don't know the answer uh, to that. Uh, but because we, uh, I, I don't know why we, we've not made better progress. But, but what I can say is because the models are, uh, as I've already mentioned, agnostic, and, and we start out with no real hypothesis, it gives us the freedom and the flexibility to uh, identify new insights, try to understand things that uh, may have been staring us in the face, but we, we didn't quite recognize. So we're, it's very early days uh, for ApoE4 in particular, uh, and we are learning a lot. Uh, so stay tuned. Uh, I, I hope that we've got uh, deeper insights uh, in the months ahead that will really point us in a new direction for, for therapies for Alzheimer's. Do you have other targets in mind that you can talk about? Well, alpha-synuclein for Parkinson's disorder I've, I've talked about. Uh, that's quite interesting to us, and we've made a lot of progress. That's the first set of programs that we are developing uh, at the moment. And then I've already mentioned uh, TDP43, uh, C9ORF. Uh, the two of these proteins are involved in ALS or, or uh, Lou Gehrig's. So, uh, you know, you're, you're asking about ApoE4 and why we would be focused on ApoE4. I think the genetics of ApoE4 are, are just too interesting and too compelling to ignore. Uh, the, the, if you are a homozygote for ApoE4, meaning you've inherited one 
uh, gene from each parent for, uh, for uh, this particular protein, then you get a very aggressive, uh, a very early onset form of the disease where uh, you uh, really do experience the disease uh, at a much earlier age. So we've got to pay attention to the genetics and uh, because there's something that's being communicated by the, the body's systems to say that ge the genetics are important. And yeast are great for analyzing uh, genetic implications of diseases. As I've mentioned at the beginning, they're cost-effective, they're easy to work with, you can quite easily manipulate uh, the genome of, uh, of a yeast and uh, insert mutations and, and very quickly uh, come to understand what, uh, what might happen if you overexpress some of these uh, proteins. So we're interested in APOE4, but we're also interested in TDP43 for ALS and Lou Gehrig's disorders uh, and C9ORF uh, as well. For which is also uh, thought to be associated with ALS. We're, uh, in addition to the Alzheimer's and ALS uh, programs we have up and running, our most advanced program uh, looks at alpha-synuclein, which is the culprit protein for Parkinson's disease. And interestingly enough, the, the yeast models and the stem cell neuron models both are giving us really keen insights into the genetic basis of synuclein disorders and what happens at the cellular level. So we, we've got new targets that we are uh, identifying and that we're working on, and we've got compounds that we are advancing to the IND phase to interact with these particular targets, uh, some of which have been described before, but many uh, of which have, have not been known as associated with neurodegenerative diseases. So stay tuned. Uh, it's, it's our hope that we will uh, have some breakthroughs in each one of these disorders and continue to use these platforms to unlock the basic cause of these diseases. Presage Biosciences has a microinjector device that enables intratumoral microdosing of experimental cancer drugs. Why does this matter? It enables researchers to evaluate several drugs at once against a single tumor while the tumor is still in the mouse or in the patient. You can test multiple combinations in a single experiment, helping keep your drug development plan on time and on budget. This device is being used in clinical trials right now. To learn more, go to presagebio.com. And Harvard Medical School designs and delivers customized executive-level programs that provide business and science leaders with a fundamental understanding of current medical practices, the changing economic landscape of healthcare, and the latest advances in biomedical science. Companies like Google, Amgen, GE, and Athena Health are already leveraging new customer insights gained through Harvard Medical School. Okay, now grab your pencil for those of you who like to take notes. For a free consultation on how your organization can gain new customer insights with Harvard Medical School, long-run podcast listeners can check out a special deal. Visit hms.harvard.edu slash longrunexec, all one word. You do have some some candidate molecules uh, that you've developed against novel targets. I mean, that that sounds like, you know, 
legitimate drug discovery <laughs> occurring at a company. No, that's that's the whole goal because it's uh, it's it's interesting and fascinating to be a platform company, but if you can't use that platform to translate into uh, new chemical entities. Uh, then you really are limiting the opportunity for patients. And we are clearly focused on new therapies. Uh, we expect that we will be able to file our first IND next year and begin human trials uh, before the end of 2019. So if you consider that the company was just founded in December of 2014, that's really fast. And uh, I'm really proud of the team and what the team's been able to accomplish. Uh, they've worked hard, but the platforms are magical. That would be five years, roughly, to go from kind of like a whiteboard concept um, to uh, compounds in, in humans. It's happening really fast. But uh, in our case, the, the progress is, is underwritten by really good, thorough, thoughtful, scientific uh, rigor. And Ken Rhodes, our chief science officer, who is the individual who, who led the team that put aducanumab in the clinic, uh, is just one of the finest scientists uh, and drug discoverers around. So he, he's got a real nose for hunting drugs, as it were. Do you see a, um, a shift in sentiment in the pharma industry toward more of this basic biology-driven drug discovery? Uh, because that just hasn't been part of industry's focus, really, for the last 20, 25 years. So, so it's an interesting question. So if by that you mean unbiased phenotypic screening, so really starting with no particular hypothesis and letting, in our case, the, the cells tell you what, what makes them sick and what makes them better, uh, you know, phenotypic screening has always been around. Uh, but most of the pharmaceutical industry, the traditional pharmaceutical industry, had used target-based screening as uh, the primary method of drug discovery for, for decades. The contrast is with target-based screening, you've got a hypothesis as to what particular protein or enzyme is the culprit in the disease process. And you take that protein, isolate it in a, in a test tube, and you screen different reagents, if you will, or different chemical compounds to see if you get the desired effect on that particular enzyme or target. The problem always comes is in transferring that assay, that system, into a living being, a, a rodent or, or any animal that you might choose, because you've taken it out of its milieu, you've isolated the effect, and now you want to try to understand whether that effect can be maintained within a living system. We, we don't have the same problem because we start and finish this part of the discovery process in a cell. So the, the target-based screening approach is tried and true. Uh, it it um, has yielded lots of success for lots of diseases and lots of companies seeking to help patients. But the unbiased phenotypic approach that we're using for disease we know so little about seems to be fit for purpose. We're at least finding new pathways and mechanisms involved in the disease and uh, have some deep insights. Well, um, I think this is the kind of thing that pharma... Uh, can't afford to support and really, really ought to, um, especially since I, I don't see academic labs just showered with riches to, to do basic discovery in, in neurodegenerative diseases, despite the glaring need. Um, so, okay, I want to shift gears now, Tony, uh, uh, to talk a little bit about um, 
leadership, really, on broader issues outside of just science and, and medicine. Um, you, um, being as successful as you've been, obviously get a lot of invitations to, you know, to contribute in, in lots of other ways. Um, you're on a couple of different boards with McKesson and Regeneron, a couple high-profile positions there. I see you're on the board of, uh, of trustees of Johns Hopkins University, you know, your alma mater, <laughs> um, and, and uh, the Smithsonian's National Museum for African American History. You, you've really got a, a, a diverse portfolio of activities outside the office. Why do you take on some of those things, and, and what do you hope to accomplish there? You know, I, I guess the blessing and the curse is if you've got a broad set of interests uh, and, uh, and the opportunity to uh, either express those interests or be involved in them, you're, you're really quite fortunate. So I count myself as fortunate to uh, be curious about the world in a lot of ways, not, not just in terms of what the world can teach me and what I can learn, but where I might be able to make a difference. And so many of the things you've talked about, Johns Hopkins is my alma mater. Uh, it's the school that really gave me my start. It, it helped me understand that uh, really anything was possible with either a textbook or, or a, a way of understanding and decoding the mystery of the problem. And that's a really powerful insight when you're a 20 or 21-year-old person and you, you recognize that you, you can master a problem if you just apply enough um, uh, enough work and, and solutions-based effort, if you will. So, so that's why Hopkins. I, I, I give it a lot of credit for for the the, the thinker I am and, and the man I am. The the Smithsonian uh, Museum of African American History and Culture is just one of the great legacy institutions for this country. And uh, despite its name, it actually tells an American story. It tells the story of a painful chapter uh, in American history because the museum starts its teaching in the 16th century and talking about the economic trade markets uh, of Western Europe and, and then ultimately the new, the new world and the new colonies and how, uh, how vitally important free labor was in those economies but also this painful recognition, first in, in Western Europe, uh, that there was something fundamentally wrong about the process of slavery, and, and, and then in this country. And while you know, racism remains a problem across the world in, in different forms, uh, we are now coming to terms and wrestling with our own feelings of this very painful chapter uh, in, in American history. But, but it is very much an American story and uh, we choose to, to look at that story head on and then uh, and confront it. It's really interesting. Um, I, I, I agree with this approach. You and I have talked about this. Um, uh, I, you know, and I'm, I look back at my earlier um, story with you and, and saw that, you know, you've, you've lived some of this experience yourself, uh, starting at a very early age, you, you remember, I think, being in the third grade when Martin Luther King was assassinated. This is 50 years ago. Um, 
a lot of people don't don't have that same experience and certainly remember the the fear um, of violence that came in the aftermath of that. How did I mean? So that's that's just one example from early in your life. But you know now, I mean, people on the outside could look at your your life journey and say, "Boy, you've been so successful, Tony." Um, did you, you must have found a way around the obstacles or, or, or maybe the obstacles aren't there. <laughs> um, to, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we've solved these problems. I, I don't think so. But Well, or, or, or maybe the obstacles still exist. And uh, whatever your relationship is with, with life and with problems, you, you either choose to embrace what's in front of you or, or you take an alternative path. And, and I, th I think, you know, I, I, I'm the person I, I, I want to be and I, I hope to be and, and think I am because I see everything that's wrong with medicine and the diseases that we can't treat and with society and with the, the world and some of the real challenges that we face. But I deeply believe that there is really a way to solve the problem or to begin to solve the problem or address the problem. And, and, and that, that's part of the gift I mentioned that Johns Hopkins gave me as an educational tool. Uh, this notion that pr problems are soluble. They may be intractable, <laughs> but they're soluble. And we, if we have the will to do the inquiry and have an open mind, we can see those things. And the, the same thing is true of being a, a, a black CEO in, in business. Uh, and being involved in many of the things that I'm involved in. Uh, it doesn't make the challenges any less important or any more real or uh, any more impactful on me personally. But I, I don't think any of us can really sit on our hands and do nothing. And th th that's this great concept of service leadership, which is really important to me, that, that to whom much is given, much is expected. And, and we, we use that phrase all the time. But I very much believe that if we, if we don't do something to address the issues and the problems we have today, then we've squandered our time on earth. So what, um, what impact can you make on a problem like this that's been around for hundreds of years? Um, it, it seems so big and, and daunting. To a lot of people probably don't know where to, start, to, where to start. You have to, well, you have to start somewhere. So take the work with the, the new African-American Museum in, in Washington, D.C. That, that institution has become a mecca of sorts for a lot of people. People come and I've heard dozens of stories of how deeply moved they are by the exhibits, by the recollection of history. <clears throat> many people saying, many white people saying, I never knew. I never knew, I never understood. And change happens at the individual level. So I, I'm not so idealistic uh, as to imagine that any of these things change overnight. But what I do think is that change starts at the individual level. And if you can impact one person, think about the person who would have impacted, I don't know, the life of Abraham Lincoln and, and subsequently all he's done for the country. or. FDR or Ronald Reagan, if uh, d depending upon your politics. And politics doesn't matter, but at some point, someone inspired each one of those people. And so if you can play a role in inspiring someone who can one day address some of these issues in a deeper way, 
that's a life well lived. Yeah, I think a lot of people are searching for their way to have an impact. How about just a dialogue? How about how about starting? You know what you and I are doing today is a terrific way. You know, you, you and I are in a dialogue. We're, right now, we're just two human beings in, in search of even better ideas and ideals. But the, this this dialogue and this conversation is an important start because I'll be enriched as a result of the questions you're asking me, and hopefully, the perspectives I share will will shape and inform your thinking. And and I hope you'll leave this conversation in a different person. Well, I think so. Um, and that reminds me of something that you had mentioned uh, not long ago, that you had had a, a conversation with uh, folks at an investment firm. Um, kind of like an open, frank dialogue, it sounded like, with uh, people of mixed races behind closed doors. And that this... Um, in- you found that this to be a healthy dialogue. Could you describe that situation and what what was it about that meeting that left you hopeful? Well, this was part of a leadership series that the firm was engaged in, and I received an invitation to come and talk about leadership in business, leadership in science, how how to think about uh, running effective organizations and growing businesses. So it was all within that context. And the interviewer asked if we could talk about race, uh, because uh, as you as you noted uh, at the top of our conversation, I I am African American, and I said, yeah, sure, that's that's absolutely fair game. So the conversation meandered uh, through the various topics of leadership, uh, my own personal experiences as an African American, how I show up in the world, how how I want to impact and interact with the world, and. You're asking what, what, what left me hopeful as a result of that conversation. And I would say two things. One, the fact that the, the firm would have the conversation in the first place, would, would invite me to speak, would ask me to share perspectives. I mean, that's a big step. And it, it may sound small, but to really openly embrace this topic and to, to listen to me recount stories from my childhood and my adulthood that are, are really meaningful to me, that, that center around race, um, that's, a big, that's a big deal because an, a culture or an environment has to be open to that. And uh, all of the top management was there and I received lots of notes subsequent to that uh, that suggest that they, that they learned something and in some way they were moved. The second thing that leaves me hopeful is it was a mixed race room. And this is a, this is a, a, a hard reflection, but I have enjoyed lots of professional successes in my life. I've got a, a great wife, I've got three great sons. I've, you know, I've been, I've been blessed in so many ways, but despite all of those things, I am, for many people, who, who have never met me, I'm still just a black man. And to relate my experiences and to have the, the black people in the audience resonate with my experience in some deep way and the people who haven't had, the white people who haven't had the, the black experience of, of uh, focusing on, on all the things that come along with the society we live in, there was a moment of real honesty and transparency where it, there was resonance with the black people and there was an enlightenment 
with many of the white people who subsequent to the conversation came up and said, I, I'm so glad you shared that because I never thought what it might be like to be you. Because people see me as a successful CEO who know me, but if I run into someone on the street or God forbid if I get pulled over in a car by, by, by you know, some authority figure, it doesn't always end that way and it doesn't always end well. And we've got that experience in, in, in spades across the country. So there's clearly a lot of work to do, but I'm, I'm hopeful that we're starting the dialogue in, a, in an earnest and meaningful way. And I'm, I'm not embarrassed in any way to, to share deeply from my experiences and how these things have affected me. Well, you know, a lot of people, I think, are afraid to even talk about it at all in a mixed environment, whether you're white or black. But why? It seems fraught with peril. <laughs> um, people are afraid they'll say the wrong thing or that it will, it, will, it will sound racist. And people use that word as a weapon now. Um, and and it just there's so much ignorance um, around the, that whole experience. But all we have to do, Luke, is suspend belief. Suspend belief. Suspend what I think I might know about you and suspend what you think you might know about me. And that is the hardest thing humans have to do. It's why we're so tribal in a sense, because those things that, that make us more alike tend to bind us instead of the things that, that are not like in a sense. And, and, and those become the things that, that push, push the others away. But if we suspend belief, then we have a different set of ears to enter the conversation. So look, I, I understand what you're saying and I understand why it can be difficult. And this is probably way more on, on race, but, but the topics here, the questions here, and I just say suspend belief. Just for a moment, believe that what the other side is saying could be true. Just believe that. And you'll have a substantively different conversation. Yeah, there are a lot of people that are going to have to uh, set down some, some ideologies um, for us to, to start listening, listening to each other. Um, I, I hope that this is a, a productive step. Um, and who knows, maybe this will be one positive uh, to come from the, the Charlottesville um, disaster that we remember from a year ago. Um, I think it was a, a wake-up call to a lot of people who think of themselves as enlightened that, boy, um, we've, um, we've still got a lot of work to do. Well, I think those who show up and uh, who, who believe uh, that they're enlightened deserve credit for at least wanting, <laughs> wanting to be open to the conversation. But enlightened isn't enough. Um, you, you really have to more deeply probe and try to, you know, the old expression, walk a thousand miles in, in someone else's shoes. So I don't know the right answer, Luke. I, I can only share one man's perspective or one, one man's uh, uh, opinion on this. But I do know that there's no problem so intractable that, it, that doesn't begin with a good, strong dialogue and conversation. So I, I appreciate you for bringing this up today. Now, this industry is particular, biotech. Um, it's science-based. Um, a lot of people with advanced degrees 
very smart people, very driven people. And I think this industry kind of sees itself as a meritocracy. There's, there's people from all over the world who come largely to the United States uh, because of historical leadership and basic biomedical research. Um, they, they come here, they want to do some good for humanity. And in, in a large number of cases, they do. But you don't see a whole lot of people that look like you in the boardrooms or in the corner office. Um, how, any, any ideas on how we can improve and make the industry look a little more like the people that it serves? You know, this is a tough one because I, I, I think it all begins with leadership. Because I think that this is something that has to be important to the leader of, of any organization, whether it's the CEO of a company looking to recruit the best executive team or the, 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 the best uh, employee set. Um, and so I know that that commitment and that conviction makes a difference. I, I hear stories all the time of really successful leaders who, who say they simply want the absolute best person and they, they put blinders on when it comes to what school they went to or what experiences they might have had. Uh, and it, it takes work. You, you've got to imagine that someone, or that you're good enough to guess that someone, could be successful in a role. But one of my proudest achievements at Onyx uh, wasn't the sale of the company. That was terrific for a, a lot of folks. It was actually in creating the executive team we created. So if you look at the annual report photo from the, the days at Onyx, there were more women than men and nearly 40% women, um, people of color uh, on the executive team. So how does that happen? You know, what was it that was so unique about Onyx that, that allowed us to create a, a gender balanced team with a disproportionate representation of people of color? And uh, I, I can only say that, you know, our goal was to find the absolute best person. And I, I asked our human resource partners to bring me the best person for this role or that role, the general counsel, the CFO, the head of commercial. And once you strive to, once you, once you suspend what you think that person should look like and, and look for the best person, it's really amazing the kind of team you built. And it didn't happen by accident. I wonder if some of those people were drawn to the idea of working with you uh, as the CEO of the company. I think that's true. That's that's true. One one of the one of the women of color uh, who worked for me said, "I just wanted to work for a black CEO, and uh, I wanted to know what that was like." And, and we enjoyed a, a fabulous relationship. And and she was a top performer. So there was probably probably that curiosity factor, uh, if if you will, but I think the openness to really seek the best in uh, in the the best in class uh, that was out there uh, really set the culture uh, that we wanted to to develop. We're doing the same thing at Humanity. Uh, Humanity, as a science based company, early stage science based company, has more women than men. And 30, 30 of our 35 employees are scientists. So the, the, the old notion that you, you can't find people of color, you can't find uh, enough women in science is just not true. We, we've got 52% women in our scientific core. So I know it can be done. I, I think you just have to, we just have to reorient our thinking 
and, and look for the best and suspend our own thoughts and biases about what it looks like. And then you create an environment where people of, from all walks of life can thrive, where, you know, sexual harassment is not tolerated, where, you know, people don't laugh at the uh, ethnic jokes. Well, that's, a, that's, that, that's for sure, uh, because there, there's got to be zero tolerance for the kinds of things that are, are just disrespectful uh, of, of each other as, as human beings. And that's another leadership opportunity for, for, for uh, CEOs and senior managers and, and board chairs. Uh, those kinds of things just, just can't be tolerated. Well, Tony, I, um, I think we're, we're about done. We have to wrap up. But I really appreciate just getting, we're just scratching the surface on this. Uh, I see this as the beginning of a dialogue. Um, I know uh, you and I will continue to think and talk about this over the years, and I hope others in the industry do too. Um, it, I, I don't think this is just one of these, like, uh, you know, it's another one of these issues that, that is, executives feel is con- they, they have to confront when, a, you know, something comes up like a scandal or something. I think this is just, it requires constant vigilance, um, even on days when, you know, it's, it's not in the news. Change happens one inch at a time, and you know this. This has been a it's been a philosophical conversation, and and we've been at a high level. But all the experiences that I've had, both as a CEO, as a business person, as a person of color in this country, have undoubtedly made me stronger, and have made me more resilient, and have given me at least a set of tools to manage adversity, and I'm proud of that. I'm, I'm proud of, of every aspect of who I am as a person. And uh, I hope this conversation uh, continues. Uh, and I hope it's, it's helpful to getting others to, to open up and to suspend belief. Suspend belief. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. Thanks to Presage Biosciences and Harvard Medical School Executive Education for sponsoring. Next episode. Vicky Sato has graciously agreed to come back for another episode of The Long Run. Unfortunately, I screwed up the audio recording of our interview back in March. Many of you were unable to hear what she had to say. I apologize for that. She has a fascinating personal story, and I want all of you to be able to hear it. And you will on the next episode of The Long Run. And thanks for listening. Tell your friends about the show on your favorite podcast app or on social media. See you next episode.